This is a Federal News Network podcast. All the General Services Administration was trying to do was get new office space for Immigration and Customs Enforcement in Rhode Island. But in a word, it bungled the procurement. The Inspector General said so. So did the courts. But it wasn't easy for the losing bidder to make its case, as we hear from Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joe Petrillo. Joe, tell us about this case, a simple-seeming way of just getting some leased office space for a branch office. Yeah, it doesn't look like rocket science, but it got to be pretty confusing by the end. What happened here was that Immigration and Customs Enforcement was leasing space, office space, in Warwick, Rhode Island, from a company called Vass Realty. That lease, uh, of course, was going to come to an end. So GSA, which handles leasing for ICE, issued a solicitation for another term of lease to continue their operations there in, in Warwick. What happened after starts getting complicated, number of solicitations, at least one proposal amendment. At the end of that process, VAS submitted the only proposal. At that point, the contracting officer contacted Cape Moraine LLC, another leasing company, and invited it to submit a proposal. Cape Moraine did submit a proposal and GSA accepted the proposal and evaluated it. There then was another round of discussions, another round of proposal revisions, and GSA ultimately awarded the contract to Cape Moraine as the lowest-priced, technically acceptable offeror back in October 2018. So GSA, in other words, was trying to create a competition by bringing in another leasing company to bid against the incumbent. Exactly. That's what it was trying to do. But as you see, what they basically did was accepted a late proposal from Cape Moraine, and that came back to become an issue for them. Yeah, late proposals Um, have always been a seemingly arbitrary but very strict issue for the government as far back as competitive bids is the deadline is sacrosanct. Absolutely. I mean, there are cases in which you practically brought to tears by the problem that's caused by that, but it's very strict and there isn't much leeway there. In this instance, you know, after the award was announced, VAS requested a debriefing and VAS Realty ultimately protested to GAO, but they got caught up in GAO's fairly complicated procedural rules about when the proper time is to submit a protest when a debriefing is involved. In that instance, GAO never got to the issues of the protest, got to the merits. The protest was dismissed uh, pretty much out of hand. But that's not the end of the story. In the meanwhile, the GSA inspector general got a hotline tip from someone and decided to investigate. And then a couple of years later, in March of 2020, they wrote a report, which they issued the next month, and they found significant irregularities in the procurement. First of all, as we mentioned, Cape Moraine's proposal was late. It came in well after the proposal due date for this procurement. But they went further and said the GSA's computation of Cape Moraine's lease price wasn't proper. They had several issues with that. And that cast doubt about whether Cape Moraine's price really was the lowest one submitted. We left Uh, out plumbing and electricity or something. (laughs) Well, it gets pretty complicated. And the IG report does go into what the issues are and doesn't give you the actual numbers that's redacted but they do show that there were some questions about how that was done and cape moraine finally didn't own or control the property it had proposed to lease this was apparently a requirement of the solicitation so there's some real issues here so ultimately vast realty gets a copy of the report asks gsa what action it's going to take and basically gets blown off so they went ahead and filed a protest of the court of federal claims 
We're speaking with Joe Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. And just to detail on that, there's a little bit of naivete on the part of that losing bidder because to think that GSA would do anything about the report from the IG, it seems like they misunderstood that there was no obligation on the part of GSA to do anything there. Absolutely. You know, IGs investigate lots of things and procurement irregularities of this sort you know, are investigated once in a while, but very, very few can compare to the large number of procurements that are out there. In this instance, though, they got lucky and there was a report and it showed up some significant issues. All right. So Vast took them to court then. And then what happened? So they go to court and in the court, the government contended for the first time, really, that Vast Realty wasn't eligible for award because it hadn't complied with a solicitation requirement regarding maximum rentable square footage. Now, that's a fairly complicated issue. And Vast had some defenses there, but the Court of Federal Claims didn't think those held water. And it dismissed the protest for lack of standing. That's a legal term. What it means is basically that just because there's something wrong with the procurement, it doesn't necessarily mean that a particular offeror has the right to bring a protest about it. You have to have standing to do so. In this instance, at least the trial court decided that wasn't the case. Vass appealed to the federal circuit and that that decision has recently been issued. And the appellate court restated the well-known rule that standing in bid protests means that the protester has a substantial chance to win award if the protest is sustained. Now, in analyzing this situation, you know, I mentioned there are lots of issues about whether or not Vass's offer was acceptable or not. But the federal circuit was able to sidestep all of that. They said, look, if the protest is sustained, it would invalidate the contract award to Cape Moraine. Even if Vass Realty is ineligible for award, there isn't any eligible bidder at that point. So a new procurement would be required and Vass Realty would be able to compete in that procurement. And so what is the practical effect of that ruling saying that they could have if they should have? Well, in this instance, because of past precedent on that question, the federal circuit said, yes, you do have standing to bring the protest. Now it goes back to the trial court where Vast Realty will finally get its day in court on the merits. And do we know what ICE ever did about its office space in the meantime? No, we don't. Generally, what happens in these situations is they continue to extend the lease they have, but that's not reported in the decision. I want to mention one other thing about the Federal Circuit decision, which is an interesting footnote that they have at the end. The government also tried on appeal to get the case tossed on another technicality called latches, meaning you waited too long. I mean, you filed your protest two years after the award was announced. And that's probably had some defenses there as well, because it's not likely they knew that Kate Moraine's proposal was late or that they had any way of figuring out the uh, computation of lease price was improper. But in in this instance, again, the uh, the Court of Federal Circuit found a short circuit. They said, well, government, have you been prejudiced by the delay? And because uh, Cape Moraine apparently had not started construction by the time the protest was filed, the government couldn't find that it had been prejudiced. So they lost on that ground as well. And Vass Realty had standing to pursue the protest. All right. And pursue they will. And someday we'll find out how this actually breaks down. But that's for another trial and another decision yet to come. Right. Well, there are still a bunch of issues to be resolved if GSA decides it's going to continue to fight them. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. 
We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.